You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. Charlotte, my mother hissed as the boys left with sour looks. That was very impolite. Why? I said, excuse me. Not everyone tips, and you should not have insulted yourself that way. No one likes pushy girls. Or girls who major in math. Or girls who get knocked up. Or... But I let the words go unspoken. Too tired to fight. This week, we present an excerpt from a book called The Alice Network. Reese Witherspoon, who picked The Alice Network as one of her book club selection, has this to say. I think you'll really enjoy this exciting and fast-paced story about a pregnant American socialite who teams up with a female ex-spy and a hot-tempered young soldier in the aftermath of World War II. This is an enthralling historical novel from national best-selling author Kate Quinn. Kate Quinn is a native of Southern California. She attended Boston University, where she earned a bachelor's and master's degree in classical voice. A lifelong history buff, she's written four novels in the Empress of Rome saga and two books in the Italian Renaissance before turning to the 20th century with the Alice Network. Chapter 1 Charlie May 1947 Southampton The first person I met in England was a hallucination. I brought her with me, on board the serene ocean liner that had carried my numb, grief-haunted self from New York to Southampton. I was sitting opposite my mother at a wicker table, among the potted palms in the Dolphin Hotel, trying to ignore what my eyes were telling me. The blonde girl by the front desk wasn't who I thought she was. I knew she wasn't who I thought she was. She was just an English girl waiting beside her family's luggage, someone I'd never seen before. But that didn't stop my mind from telling me she was someone else. I averted my eyes, looking instead at the three English boys at the next table, who were busy trying to get out of tipping their waitress. Five percent tip or ten, a boy in a university tie was saying, waving the bill, and his friends laughed. I only tip if they're pretty. She had skinny legs. I glowered at them, but my mother was oblivious. So cold and wet for May, mon dieu. She unfolded her napkin, a feminine flurry of lavender-scented skirts among the heaps of our baggage. Quite a contrast to me, all rumpled and cross. Put your shoulders back, chérie. She'd lived in New York since she married my father, but she still sprinkled her phrases with French. Do stop slouching. I can't slouch in this getup. I was crammed into a waist cincher like a band of iron. Not that I needed one because I was built like a twig. But my froth of skirts wouldn't hang right without it. So band of iron it was. That Dior, may he and his new look rot in hell. My mother always dressed right at the crest of any new fashion. And she was built for the latest styles. Tall, tiny-waisted, voluptuously curved. A confection in her full-skirted traveling suit. I had a frilly traveling suit, too but I was drowning in all the fabric. 1947 was hell for little bony girls like me, who couldn't wear the new look. Then again, 1947 was hell for any girl who would rather work calculus problems than read Vogue. 
any girl who would rather listen to Edith Piaf than Artie Shaw, and any girl with an empty ring finger but a rounding belly. I, Charlie Sinclair, was officially three for three. That was the other reason my mother wanted me in a waist censure. I was only three months gone, but she wasn't taking any chances that my shape might announce what a whore she'd brought into the world. I stole a glance across the hotel court. The blonde girl was still there, and my mind was still trying to tell me she was someone she wasn't. I looked away again with a hard blink as our waitress approached with a smile. Will you be staying for the full tea, madam? She did have bony legs, and as she bustled away with our order, the boys at the next table were still complaining about leaving her a tip. Five shillings each for tea, I'll just leave a tuppence. Our tea arrived soon in a clatter of flowered china. My mother smiled her thanks. More milk, please. Ah, oh, c'est bon. Though it wasn't all that bon, really. Hard little scones and dry tea sandwiches, and no sugar. There was still rationing in England, even though VE Day had been two years ago. And the menu of even a sumptuous hotel still showed the ration set price of no more than five shillings per diner. The hangover of war was still visible here in a way you didn't see in New York. There were still soldiers in uniforms drifting through the hotel court, flirting with the maids. And an hour ago, when I disembarked the ocean liner, I'd noticed the shelled look of the houses on the wharf, like gaping teeth and a pretty smile. My first look at England, and from dockside wharf to hotel court, it all looked gray and exhausted from the war, still shocked the bone, just like me. I reached into the pocket of my heather gray jacket, touching the piece of paper that had lived there for the past month, whether I was in a traveling suit or pajamas. But I didn't know what to do with it. What could I do with it? I didn't know, but it still seemed heavier than the baby I was carrying. I couldn't feel that at all, or manage to have a single clear emotion about it. I wasn't sick in the mornings, or craving split pea soup with peanut butter, or feeling any of the other things you were supposed to feel when you were knocked up. I was just numb. I couldn't believe in this baby, because it had changed nothing. Only my whole life. The boys rose from the next table, tossing a few pennies down. I could see the waitress coming back with milk, walking as if her feet hurt. And I looked up at the three English boys as they turned away. Excuse me, I said, and waited until they turned back. Five shillings each for tea. A bill of 15 shillings gives a total 5% tip of nine pence. 10% tip would be a shilling and sixpence. They looked startled. I was used to that look. No one thought girls could do figures at all, much less in their heads. Even easy figures like this. But I'd been a math major at Bennington. Numbers made sense to me. They were orderly and rational and easy to figure out, unlike people. And there wasn't a bill anywhere I couldn't tot up faster than an adding machine could do it for me. Ninepence, or one in six, I repeated wearily for the staring boys. Be gentlemen, leave the one in six. Charlotte, my mother hissed as the boys left with sour looks. That was very impolite. Why? I said excuse me. Not everyone tips, and you should not have insulted yourself that way. No one likes pushy girls. Or girls who major in math. Or girls who get knocked up. Or... But I let the words go unspoken, too tired to fight. We'd been six days crossing the Atlantic in a single stateroom, 
longer than expected because of rough seas. And those six days had passed in a series of tense squabbles, lapsing into even more uncomfortable civility. Everything underlain by my shame-filled silences, her incandescent silent rage. It was why we'd seized the opportunity to get off the boat for a single night. If we didn't get out of that close, confined room, we were going to fly at each other. Your mother's always ready to fly at someone. My French cousin Rose had said that years ago, when Maman had subjected us to a ten-minute tirade for listening to Edith Piaf. That's not music for little girls. It's indecent. Well, I'd done something a lot more indecent now than listen to French jazz. All I could do was turn my emotions away until I stopped feeling them, fend people off with a sharp-jutted chin tilted at an angle that said, I don't care. It worked well enough on rude boys who didn't tip their waitress. But my mother could get behind that shell anytime she liked. She was chattering away now, complaining about our passage. Knew we should have taken the later boat. That would have brought us direct to Calais, without this silly roundabout stop in England. I remained silent. One night in Southampton, and then tomorrow straight on to Calais, where a train would take us to Switzerland. There was a clinic in Vevey where my mother had scheduled me for a certain discreet appointment. Be grateful, Charlie, I told myself for the thousandth time. She didn't have to come with you at all. I could have been packed off to Switzerland with my father's secretary or some other indifferent paid handler. My mother didn't have to miss her usual vacation in Palm Beach just to bring me to my appointment herself. She's here with you. She's trying. I could appreciate that even in my stew of fogged, angry shame. It wasn't as if she was wrong to be so furious with me, to think I was a troublemaking slut. That's what girls were if they got themselves into the fix I was in. I'd better get used to the label. Maman was still talking, determinedly cheerful. I thought we'd go to Paris after your appointment. Every time she said it, I heard the capital letter. Get you some proper clothes, ma petite. Do something with your hair. What she was really saying was, you'll come back to school in the fall with a chic new look, and no one will know about your little problem. I really don't see that equation balancing out, maman. What on earth do you mean? I sighed. One college sophomore minus one small encumbrance, divided by six months' passage of time, multiplied by ten Paris frocks and a new haircut, will not magically equal one restored reputation. Life is not a math problem, Charlotte. If it was, I'd have been a lot better at it. I'd often wished I could work out people as easily as I did arithmetic, simply break them down to their common denominators and solve. Numbers didn't lie. There was always an answer. And the answer was either right or it was wrong. Simple. But nothing in life was simple and there was no answer here to solve for. There was just the mess that was Charlie Sinclair, sitting at a table with her mother, with whom she had no common denominators. Maman sipped her weak tea, smiling bright, hating me. I shall inquire as to whether our rooms are ready. Don't slouch, and do keep your case close by. You've got your grandmother's pearls in there. She floated off toward the long marble counter, and the bustling clerks, and I reached for my traveling case, square and battered. There had been no time to order me smart new luggage. I had half a pack of Gauloises tucked under the flat box with my pearls. 
only my mother would insist I pack pearls for a Swiss clinic. I'd happily leave the baggage and the pearls to get stolen if I could just step outside for a good smoke. My cousin Rose and I tried our first cigarette at the respective ages of 13 and 11, snitching a pack from my older brother and disappearing up a tree to try some grown-up vice. Do I look like Bette Davis? Rose had asked, trying to exhale smoke through her nose. I nearly fell out of the tree, laughing and coughing together after my single puff, and she stuck her tongue out at me. Silly Charlie. Rose was the only one to call me Charlie instead of Charlotte, giving it a soft French lilt. Charlie. Emphasis on both syllables. It was Rose, of course, who I saw gazing at me across the hotel court now. And it wasn't Rose. It was just an English girl slouching beside a pile of luggage. But my brain stubbornly told me I was seeing my cousin. Thirteen, blonde, peach pretty. That was how old she'd been the last summer I saw her, sitting in that tree with her first cigarette. She'd be older by now, twenty-one to my nineteen. If she was still alive. Rose, I whispered, knowing I should look away but not doing it. Oh, Rose. In my imagination, she gave an impish smile and a toss of her chin to the street outside. Go. Go where? I said aloud. But I already knew. I thrust my hand into my pocket and felt the scrap of paper I'd been carrying for a month. It had been stiff and crinkly, but time had worn it soft and pliable. That piece of paper bore an address. I could. Don't be stupid. My conscience had a sharp, condemning voice that stung like a paper cut. You know you're not going anywhere but upstairs. There was a hotel room waiting for me with crisp sheets, a room I wouldn't have to share with my mother's brittle fury, a balcony where I could smoke in peace, another boat to catch tomorrow, and then the appointment, as my parents euphemistically referred to it. The appointment, which would take care of my little problem, and then things would be... All right. Or I could admit that nothing was all right, and nothing would be all right. And I could just go, right now, down the path that started here in England. You planned for this, Rose whispered. You know you did. And I had. Even in my passive, blunted misery of the last few weeks, I'd pushed for the boat that would take my mother and me the roundabout way through England not the later passage that would have borne us right to France. I'd pushed for it without letting myself think about why I was pushing for it, because I had an English address in my pocket. And now, without an ocean in the way, all I lacked was the guts to go there. The unknown English girl who wasn't Rose had gone now, headed for the hotel stairs behind a bellboy laden with luggage. I looked at the empty space where Rose had been. I touched the scrap of paper in my pocket, Little jagged pieces of feeling poked me through my numbness. Fear? Hope? Resolve? One scribbled address plus one dash of resolve, multiplied to the power of ten. Work the equation, Charlie. Break it down. Solve for X. Now or never. I took a deep breath. I pulled out the scrap of paper, and with it came a crumpled pound note. Recklessly, I slapped it down on the table next to mine, where the braying boys had left their measly tip. And I walked out of the hotel court clutching my traveling case and my French cigarettes, 
straight out through the wide doors of the hotel, where I asked the doorman, Excuse me, but can you direct me to the train station? We hope you've enjoyed this excerpt of The Alice Network written by Kate Quinn. It's a great story, and you can continue by listening to the audiobook, reading the print, or ebook, wherever those editions are sold. We hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast, leave us a note, and tell your friends about Harper Audio Presents. Until next time. <laughs>